In case you didn't know, the sermon's about resurrection. Just this case. Hmm? 1 Corinthians 15. If uh, It's not printed in the folder, so if you pull out your pew Bible or your own Bible and want to turn there with me um, and follow along from Paul's letter, his first letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a, uh, a group of, as most of the New Testament, first-generation Christians, a very pagan city. Uh, a lot of very uh, difficult work was done there, but the gospel came, changed a lot of lives, and Paul planted the church at Corinth. Uh, and then they send him a bunch of questions, like, oh, what are we supposed to do here? What about this? And what about this? And that's pretty much what 1 Corinthians is, an answer to a lot of their questions that they have asked. We turn now to the 15th chapter, and this chapter deals with the resurrection of Christ. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the word of God? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes and open our hearts. These would be more than just words on the page, Lord, that they would jump in and affect us and, and take hold of all that we are, that our eyes would be open and our hearts enlivened to the truth of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to read verses 12 through 34 of chapter 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, most of us have heard the word Jenga before, okay, or even played Jenga. Now, I thought about bringing out, because Alex up, up in the youth room has this giant Jenga game, and I thought about bringing it out and putting it up here as an example, but I didn't think we could resist. You know, somebody's bound to come by and start knocking out little pieces, and it would fall over right at the most inopportune moment. Um, but Jenga, this game, was created by a, a British man named Leslie Scott. And if you don't know how the game works, players take turns and you st stack the blocks up in three this way, three this way, three, and you, you take turns pulling one out and putting it up on the top. Uh, it's 54 blocks and, and you make a, a progressively higher and higher structure, but it becomes progressively and progressively more unstable as it gets higher. So not in addition to the fact that you're making it higher and higher with less uh, of a foundation, each block is made specifically to have certain imperfections in it. Okay, They are not nice and rectangular, they're, they're a little off. So it makes it even tougher to build the tower. It is said that Robert Grebler built the tallest Jenga tower ever at 40 and two-thirds levels. Now, there is an 821-foot skyscraper in Manhattan, and it is known as the Jenga Building because it looks like a Jenga tower. Each individual housing unit is kind of stacked like this, and it looks somewhat chaotic. But at 820 feet, it must be okay. okay? Now, why do we start with Jenga on Easter morning? Well, there are some pretty wild things in the Bible. If you, if you haven't read it, then you need to go back and read it because there are some really wild things in the Bible according to the sensibilities of the 21st century man and woman. Jonah and the whale. An ark full of every type of animal in the world. Rivers and seas actually being stopped and then separated and the land being dry upon which the people walk. Fire that comes down from heaven and consumes entire cities. A virgin conception. 15,000 being fed from a couple loaves and, and some fishes. Okay? Healings of all sorts, people being raised from the dead, even people rising up into the clouds and disappearing. Now, which of these supernatural things is too much for you to take? Okay, well, you may think, well, all of them are too much for me to take, Rand. I just don't believe any of them. Or you may go, well, I, you know, I can go for some of them, you know, but, but in the belly of a whale for three days, that's a lot to ask. That's a lot to ask, because... You know, you get all moldy and, and digested in there. Which one, like the game of Jenga, are you willing to knock out and still hope that your theological tower can stand? See, that's what we're dealing with today. Because apparently this is what was going on at the church at Corinth in the first century. They were holding to a lot of things. They had seen a lot of things, and they were good with a lot of things. But when it came to the resurrection... They're just like, come on, Paul, this, this is too much. Nobody comes out of the grave. Nobody who is dead for three days comes out of the grave. Too far-fetched. Body resurrection, too far-fetched. 
So the question is, can we get rid of the empty tomb and the risen Christ and still have Christianity? Or is that too much to get rid of in our theological Jenga tower? The opening 11 verses here that that we didn't read, I'll just summarize for you. Because Paul summarizes the gospel in those 11 verses. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and the apostles to 500 others. And Paul writes, last of all, as to one untimely born, that would be Paul. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. So Paul has laid out the the fundamentals of the gospel here, and it includes the centrality and the historicity of the resurrection. That means the, the resurrection is central to the Christian faith, and it is historically provable. Historically provable. And Paul has seen it. Unfortunately, it took me about 10 seconds to come up with a giant list of pastors, seminary presidents, and academic theologians who don't believe in a bodily resurrection. And I was shocked. These people profess to believe in Christ and profess to be Christians, but they don't believe in in the bodily resurrection. That's a problem because a dead Christ is not going to save anybody. Not going to save anybody. So today we're going to look first at some of the consequences of a faith that does not have a risen Lord. Because some of the Corinthians were saying in verse 12, let me read. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Why is the bodily resurrection of Christ so very important? Because verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ does not come out of the grave. What are the implications for us? That Christ, if Christ is still dead, what are the implications for us? If he's not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Now that's a terrible thing to say to a preacher. Okay, because that means I've spent my life, the last 30 years, in vain. Every Sunday, uh, 48 Sundays a year, let's say that. Um, getting up and proclaiming these things to be true. And if Christ didn't come out of the grave then I've just wasted my time. And what's worse, you all have wasted your time being there, listening to me, because it's just foolishness. If Jesus is dead, then preaching about the empty tomb is hot air. In fact, it's worse than hot air. It's a lie. If the tomb is not empty, then death still has victory. The grave still has its sting. He goes on to say in verse 15, not only would preaching be a waste of time, it would be a misrepresentation of God. It would be blasphemy. Because we would be saying things about God that he has not done or has not said about himself. If we're too modern or too educated or too enlightened to believe in the resurrection, then Paul says to stop talking about it. Stop wasting your time in worship. You could be playing golf on Sunday instead of being here in church. Stop sending missionaries all those dollars to take a lie out into the rest of the world. Stop planting churches. If there's no resurrection, don't do any of that. Don't share your faith. Don't live a holy life. Live however you want to. Because it's all a waste of time if Christ didn't come out of the grave. So not only is my preaching in vain, your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. Do you think you can slide 
the resurrection out of your Jenga tower because it doesn't fit with modern sensibilities, you're fooling yourself because you take the resurrection out and it all comes crashing down. Christ giving his life on the cross becomes nothing more than altruism. Altruism never saved anybody. It doesn't atone for your sin. And if you're still in your sin, you've got no hope. You've got no hope at all. And what about, he goes on to say, what about those who are already dead? Those who have, he says, fallen asleep. If you've fallen asleep in Christ and Christ never came out of the grave and Christ hasn't been raised, then you're not going to be raised either. Forget about going to the graveside at a funeral. We like to do a funeral here in church, then we go to the cemetery, and we have a graveside service because it's a testimony to what? The resurrection from the dead. When Christ returns, he will gather those who are his. Their bodies will be raised imperishable to be with him at all time. If there's no resurrection of Christ, there's no resurrection for us, we don't have no need to go to the cemetery. I mean, we can go to the cemetery and say, man, that, and they have a nice casket. That looks good. Or how about that vault? That's a good vault. You know what? That's going to preserve them for generations. We'll be able to dig them up in 100 years, and they'll look pretty much the same. What a waste it would be. What a waste. We have no hope. You're still in our sin if there's no resurrection. The dead are gone forever. We will never see them again. If you've been to a funeral here, one of the things I like to say about the believer, we will see them again. And if there is no resurrection, there is no hope. What about we who are still alive? Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Now, I went to Pittsburgh Seminary. Um, I came across quite a few people who did not believe in the bodily resurrection. You would think, why are you going to seminary if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection? Okay? I don't know why they wanted to do ministry if they didn't believe it, because there's no power. No empty grave, no power in ministry. They were nice enough people. I mean, they wanted to feed the hungry. They wanted to clothe the naked. They wanted to find shelter for the homeless. But in reality, their ministry would have no real power. They couldn't offer anything beyond a meal, a coat, and a bed. If Jesus is dead, that's it. And Christianity is a waste of time. If only for this life we have hope, we are of all men most to be pitied. Pastor Mark Dunn wrote, if life here on this earth is all there is, it makes no sense to base our hope on the groundless promises of one who made empty assertions about eternity. He's talking about Jesus. If Jesus says, I'm going to come out of the grave, and he didn't, what does that mean for us? If the Christian faith is based on an empty gospel and a Savior who is still dead, then anybody's better than us because we're the biggest fools. We are most to be pitied. What fools we are to believe in a Savior who could not overcome death. Those are some of the consequences of a dead Christ. And there's that great word, but, but we go to verse 20 and following. Here are the consequences of the risen Christ. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the implications for that resurrection are for the future. He is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is really a Jewish uh, term because it was a Jewish feast. 
And the first fruits means the sample of the greater whole that is to come. We see this out of Leviticus, as I said, the feast of the first fruits. Now, this feast, follow closely, was the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. Okay? That would be the Sunday after Passover, which would be what day? Today, Easter. That's the celebration of the first fruits. It's a picture of the resurrection of Christ. And Paul says, now Christ has risen from the dead and become the first fruits. He's come out, so all who are in him will come out as well. Just as the feast of the first fruits in the Old Testament showed how good the harvest would be later. It was all about what's coming later. We're going to collect these first fruits as a sign of how the Lord will bless us. The same thing is here. Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. Paul goes to the very root of this issue here. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam didn't fulfill what we think he should have done, which was simply obedience. There, you're in the perfect place. You've got the perfect companion. What else could you want? The Lord walks through the garden. And what does he want? He wants what he wants, okay? Because the Lord said, don't do this. That's the only thing he said, don't do that. And he said, oh, i got to do that. Because I think I know better than the Lord. So when he sinned, all those who come from Adam have that problem too. It is in our very natures. We call Adam our federal head. Think of Dale Strong or Tommy, Tommy Tuberville who represent us at the federal level. They make decisions which affect us. The same image is for Adam. Because of his sin, all who come from Adam have that same sin. And the wages of sin is death. And we can't get out of that death on our own. So God had to do something about it. That's why he sent Christ. But Christ is the, the second Adam. The one who did obey God perfectly. The one who did not sin. He kept the covenant. In fact, he not only kept the covenant himself, he paid the penalty for all those who would believe. All those who are in Adam who are tainted by his sin, who would believe. My sin was poured out upon Christ in the cross. So that, as Paul says in verse 22, in Christ all shall be made alive. If we are in Christ, his resurrection makes our resurrection inevitable. Inevitable. Now let's face it. Maybe you've tried this in the past. Tried to be perfect. Tried to be obedient to God. Trying to be a, a pretty good guy, a pretty good girl. I give to charity. I go to Sunday school. I go to church. Anything that is self-reliant, any good work that you think will get you into heaven is folly. It will not put us in right standing with our Heavenly Father. Because there's only one answer when you stand before the Lord and the Lord says, Why are you here? And you say, Because I worked so hard to get here. He's going to say, We'll see you later. I'm paraphrasing God there, of course. The only answer is, I rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it is in him that I trust. Well done, good and faithful.
So Christ is the first fruits. He's risen on the third day. And then he, when he returns, those who belong to Christ shall come out of the grave with their bodies fit for all eternity. Then comes the end when all things are placed under subjection to Christ. Remember, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. doesn't say everyone will believe. It says every knee shall bow, though, and recognize that he is Lord. Because he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that last enemy is death. And at the return of Christ, death will have no more power. So, what's that mean for us today? Three things, three practical applications I think we can take away from this today. The first one, verse 29, which is a strange verse unless we understand it. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Now, this is taken by some sects to mean you should be baptized for people who are already dead. That's not what it means. He's talking about if Christ were dead, why would you be baptized in the name of somebody who is dead? But because Christ is alive, you are baptized into Christ, into his body. So when we baptize someone, whether it's an infant or an adult, they are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Godhead. Why Christ? Because he's alive. We baptize into the living Christ. It is our union with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Number two, I think this passage gives us an understanding about suffering. It gives us a meaning for suffering. Look at verse 30 to 32. Why are we in danger every hour? And there are places that Paul lists all the things that has been done to him, beatings, shipwrecks, you know, stonings, uh, things like that. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? If you remember, it, it, it comes a little bit later, but in Ephesus... There's a whole um, auditorium, about 25,000 people in this outdoor, that could sit in this outdoor auditorium. And they are screaming for Paul's head. They want, they want him dead because he's come and stirred things up with the gospel. And what does Paul want to do? He doesn't want to run away. He wants to go in and try to reason with 25,000 people. You know, we like to think that one person is smart, but people are stupid. Okay. It's the mob. But Paul's right now, I've got to give him the gospel, and they rush him out of town. But he's talking about all the sufferings that he has gone through. He says, if the dead in Christ are not raised, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. What possibly could suffering mean? If this world is all there is, then why should I suffer? Why should I bear any discomfort in my life at all see that's the type of thought that leads to things like assisted suicide for any age and for any reason that sounds good to an individual it leads to a self-centeredness that no one else matters but me and my desire to avoid suffering in this world if christ has not risen what awaits me 
death and nothingness. You just go in the grave and you're done. Close your eyes and that's the end of it. Therefore, why should I endure suffering? Why not simply live for the moment? Why not simply live for pleasure? Why not simply live for me? Forget you. Just live for me. And when I can no longer achieve a level of happiness that I think is the standard that I want, just end it. Go to nothingness. Cease to be. If Christ has not been raised, then suffering has no service and no meaning in this life. But if Christ has been raised, then my sufferings have meaning. It's Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, uns- the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's saying because Jesus has been raised, it is worth it. Suffering only makes sense if the tomb is empty and Jesus has triumphed over death. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, your suffering is really meaningless. But if you do, it gives it meaning. It gives it rational purpose. The third application is our sanctification. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, that's not a shock. Okay? That's something that we all are aware of. He says, wake up from your stupor. Don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. Bad theology, there's no resurrection, that's the bad theology he's talking about, leads to an immoral life. It's the way it is. Why should I put parameters on my morality if I don't believe in God? Why should I put parameters on my morality and my behavior if there's nothing beyond the grave? If I just die and close my eyes and that's it? You see, it's not it. Yeah. When we die, we're going to close our eyes in a blink, and then we're going to see Christ face to face. And he's either going to say, you are mine, or you are not mine. Without the resurrection of Christ, really the the rest of our existence has no meaning. But because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. He is risen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this. And, and, and we are people who would die for the likes of us. But yet, such is your grace. That you saw us when we were in our sin, when we were separated from you, when we were your enemies, when we were completely and totally selfish. Christ gave his life for us, and he's come out of the grave as the first fruits to guarantee that those who are in him will come out as well. And now, perhaps today, you call us by name. We can hear you in our hearts and our heads. You're saying today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you will believe upon the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Draw us unto yourself, Heavenly Father. Grab hold of us. 
Let us not mistake this longing in our hearts for truth and for purpose and meaning as as a bad breakfast, as no breakfast, too much breakfast. Let us understand it as your Holy Spirit drawing us unto you that today we would believe in the risen Lord Jesus the Christ.